Well, for the third time, Happy New Year to you all. It's great to be with you on this last day of the year. I can't think of a better way to end the year than to be with God's people. Amen. Amen. 2023 flew by. A year ago today, my wife and I were entering California from Colorado. It's hard to believe that was a year ago. We drove through a snowstorm to get here and brought the snow and rain with us, and then it seemed like it rained for two months after we got here. So (laughs) the year certainly flew by, and today we're going to be flying through 15 verses. Can you imagine that? 15 verses at the pace we've been going. That is at light speed. So 15 verses of John chapter 3. And in John 3, 22 through 36, as Pastor Chris just read for us, there are five different assertions about Jesus that should help you exalt Christ in your life. First, he is superior. Second, he is sovereign. Third, he is above Fourth, he is true, and fifth, he is judge. And don't worry, I'll go over these as we uh, reach them in the sermon. But these are the five assertions about Jesus from the text. And the main idea is this. These five assertions about Jesus in John 3, 22 through 36, demonstrate his exalted status and prompt humility in true believers. So our first point is this, he is superior. Look with me at John chapter 3, we'll read 22 through 26. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and the people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of, the, of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. So let's begin back in verse 22. It says, after these things. This is a progression from the previous verses that we have read in the last couple of weeks. And if you remember what's gone on in John chapter 3 prior to this, in John chapter 2, in John chapter 2, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem at Passover. He's cleansed the temple and caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. And then, at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus has not entrusted himself to the crowd's external proclamation of belief because he knows their hearts. After this, because he knows what is in man, there comes a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus uh, by night, and Jesus proclaims the gospel to him and describes the nature of the gospel, and that's how we've, we've come through John 3 all the way to verse 22. So now, after Jesus has finished his discussion with Nicodemus by night, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes into Judea with his disciples and he was baptizing. Now, he's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's in the region around Jerusalem, which is Judea. And he's baptizing through his disciples. If you would look to John 4, 2, we see that although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were. So if we, if we square that with uh, John uh, 3.22, we see that the baptizing was being done in Jesus' name, but he himself wasn't doing it. It was being done by his disciples. He was not personally baptizing them. And you might ask, well, why do you think, why is Jesus not doing the baptizing? Well, imagine being asked, who baptized you? I was baptized by Jesus. Who were you baptized by? 
Paul actually encounters something similar in 1 Corinthians 1.14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, because the same thing could happen there. Imagine being, imagine being able to say, well, well, Paul baptized me. Who were you baptized by? Barnabas? Well, I was baptized by Paul. And the similar thing is happening here. Jesus is baptizing, but it's through his disciples. Now, we see the word baptize. It's used four different times in this passage. And oftentimes, when we see a word repeated, that's repeated for emphasis. However, the word baptize and, and baptism is not the emphasis. It's not the major theme of this passage. The major theme is Christology. This text is telling us about Jesus Christ. So if, if the passage is not really about baptism, why is it mentioned so much? Why is Jesus baptizing here? Why did John baptize? Well, Baptism in the Old Testament context before the church was an outward profession of repentance. It was an outward symbol of purification. In Matthew 3, 6, people came to John the Baptist and it says that they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So it's an external proclamation of I'm confessing my sins. Later on in Matthew, Matthew 4, 17, we're told from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's preaching faith and repentance, the same thing that John is preaching. Now, to repent means to turn away from your sins and turn to something. It is a turning. It's not just a mindset. It is more than that. Yes, there is a mindset of repentance. You need to to believe and and repent in your mind, but it is also you repent of something and you turn to something. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You turn from something and to something. And repentance in that context and in our context today is turning from inferior idols, inferior gods. And you might think, well, I don't have an idol. I don't worship a little statue. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you, you worship yourself. You worship your own desires. And repentance is turning from that heart idol and turning to God, turning to the true and living God. So baptism is a public symbol in the Old Testament of repentance and commitment to God. So Jesus is preaching a gospel message as he goes into Judea. He's preaching a salvation message. Now we see in verse 23 that John is also baptizing in Anon near Salem. Now John baptized Jesus. We read about that in chapter 1. And oftentimes we think, okay, John baptizes Jesus, Jesus is on the scene, John immediately disappears. However, John's ministry is actually still ongoing. There's about a six-month window, roughly, when Jesus appears on the scene that John is still continuing in his ministry. Now, John is baptizing near the springs of Salem, and people are coming to him. And we're told that he's baptizing in this location because there's much water there. And why is that important? Well, that's because John is baptizing by immersion. You see, the biblical method of baptism is not sprinkling. It's not putting a little water on. It is immersion. And that's why John, the writer, makes an emphasis that John is baptizing. John the Baptist is baptizing in Salem because there's much water there. You need a lot of water to, to dunk someone. If you're just putting a few drops on someone, you don't need a lot of water. So this is an example of what true baptism looks like. Baptism is total immersion. Now, Salem is not in Judea. Where is Salem? Salem is in Samaria. It's to the north. 
Now, why is this important? Well, you see, John has left Judea and has made way for Jesus. Jesus is preaching in Judea. John has left and gone into Samaria. Now, why is this important? This is because Jesus' ministry is superior, as shown by the transition from John to Jesus. Now, John was not yet thrown in prison. And you might think, well, of course he's not in prison. How is he baptizing in Salem? Obviously, if he's baptizing in Salem, he's not in prison. So why does the writer, the apostle John, include this, this note in verse 24? Well, if you look at Matthew and Mark, the synoptic gospels, which are written 40, 50 AD, they don't include this account. When you read those gospels, it almost appears as if Jesus appears on the scene and then John is immediately thrown in, in jail. However, as we said, there's about a six-month overlap. And the Gospel of John was written around AD 90, so 40, 30, 40 years after the other Gospels. And so the Apostle John includes this information to clarify, hey, this isn't a, a, something wrong with the other Gospels. I'm just bringing a little bit of clarity to what's going on here. So John is baptizing in Samaria. Jesus is baptizing in Judea, and we get to verse 25, and we see that there is a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. There's an argument. Now, the argument is not that John's baptism is somehow inferior to Jesus or superior to Jesus. That's not the argument. Some commentators make that claim, and, and there's not a lot of evidence for that. Now, the argument is this. The reason there's this argument or discussion is, is that is, does baptism ritually purify a person? So ritual cleanliness is very important in first century Judaism. And the question is, if you are baptized, does that ritually purify you before God? And we know this is the question because we see the same word used by, um, by Jesus at the wedding in John 2, 6. We see that there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. It's the same word. Now, the, the real issue isn't this discussion between John's disciples and this Jew. This, this discussion sparks a larger question among John's disciples. Look with me at verse 26. They came, they being John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. They remember that John testified about Jesus, yet their minds don't grasp the nature of this testimony. And they use the word behold. It's an expression of amazement, of, of wonder. Behold, he's baptizing. All are coming to him. And now this is obviously an exaggeration. If we just go back to verse 23, we see that John was also baptizing. So obviously not everyone is going to Jesus. It's an exaggeration. It's an expression of discontentment by John the Baptist's disciples. You see, Jesus got his, his public start to his ministry at John's baptism by being baptized by John. And now Jesus has eclipsed John. And John's disciples don't understand why. They don't understand John's purpose and they don't understand Jesus's purpose. You see, they want John to be exalted. They want him to get the glory, to get the crowds, and perhaps share in that glory. And our application from this is that any ministry is in danger when people elevate the ministry leadership 
above Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is superior to any and every earthly minister. Earthly ministers must be eclipsed by Jesus Christ. See, all true churches have Christ at the forefront, not the pastor, not the the worship team, not anyone else. It must be Jesus Christ. In our church, I was recovering from a a sickness yesterday, and I told the elders, hey, I might not be able to preach. And you know what? If I hadn't, that would have been okay, because then Pastor Chris would have come up and preached, or if Pastor Chris hadn't come up, Fred would have come up, or one of the other elders would have come up, and it probably would have actually been better than this. Why? Because it would have demonstrated that it doesn't matter about who is in the pulpit so long as we're faithfully proclaiming God's word, because it is God's word that we're proclaiming, not our own words, right? And too often... Ministry leaders have a desire to be the star of the show. And this is true at all levels of ministry, whether it's mega churches, mid-level churches, small churches, Bible studies, life groups, whatever the case may be, this can be true. And one famous preacher provided an illustration to describe this problem. He said that ministers want to be the main attra- who want to be the main attraction are just like the stars of the night sky. Stars only become visible when the sun is hidden and when it is dark. Then the stars are seen clearly because the world is now darker and more dangerous. The presence of the sun hides the stars but brings much greater light and safety. Jesus is the sun, S-U-N and S-O-N, literally. Only when ministers hide the sun do they become the main attraction, leaving the church in darkness. Now, this doesn't apply just to those who are in vocational ministry. It also applies to those who are in lay ministry as well. It's easier to fall in the dark, to become lost in the dark, or to be attacked or by a wild animal or something in the dark. This is why we should always point to the sun. So if you're Bible study, discipleship group, coffee ministry, children's program, music ministry, or any other ministry that you can think of becomes focused on you, and not on Jesus Christ, then you're acting as if you are superior to Jesus. You're acting as if you are the superior one and not Christ. And as I said earlier, this church is not relying on Pastor Chris, me, the elders, or any other individual. The Lord has taken care of this church for many, many years, and he will continue to do so after we are all gone. Christ is superior, and we must point all others to him, not seek to enhance ourselves. So my question for you is, do you exalt Christ in your life? Are you filled with joy when men flock to Christ, even if it's not in a ministry that you're involved in? Or are you like John's disciples, worried about your own position instead of exalting Christ? So firstly, we see that Jesus is superior. Second, we see that he is sovereign. Look with me at verses 27 through 30. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's disciples are concerned that Jesus is eclipsing their master. And John replies with a simple yet wonderful declaration that extols the sovereignty of God. John's reply is a general maxim. 
Uh, John replies, and a man says, can receive some things apart from heaven? Oh, no, 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 that's not what it says. It says that a man can receive nothing apart from heaven unless it's been given to him from heaven. This is very strong language that John is using here. It's literally translated, no one can receive not one thing apart from heaven. And dear friends, this has major implications for us. You see, all your gifts, all your talents come from the Lord. Every job, every position, every responsibility that you have comes from God. Your family, your friends, your material blessings, everything comes from God. He is sovereign. And such a truth is extremely relevant to your life. As we are about to embark on a new year, it's often that people become apprehensive. What's the new year going to bring? I mean, what's, what are there job prospects in the new year? I mean, there's rumors there could be a coming recession. It's an election year. I mean, there's all these things that are happening. Maybe you have health issues or family troubles or financial concerns, and it's easy to become stressed about life's problems. Yet God is the one who gives us all things. He's in control of all things. He is sovereign. To wish for anything else than what he gives is covetous. It's rooted in a prideful heart that says, no, I deserve better than what God has given. And it's easy to become caught up in that mindset. A few weeks ago, Sydney and I were driving home, as many of you know, and we got hit by a a teen driver. Thankfully, there wasn't a lot of damage to the vehicle and and everything got worked out. But right after that, a few days later, our other vehicle had an engine problem, had to go in the shop. So we went from two vehicles to one vehicle to no vehicles in about the space of two or three days. And towards the end of the week, as much as I'd like to say that I was fully trusting in God and thanking him for his sovereignty, by the end of the week, I was feeling a little frustrated, a little worried. And my wife had to remind me that I had no reason to complain and every reason to be thankful for what God had provided. You see, my frustration came from a sinful heart attitude that said, no, I, I deserve better than this instead of thanking God for the opportunities and privileges and blessings that I had. My encouragement to you is this. If you're feeling anxious about something, trust God as the source of every good gift. Trust in his sovereign decree for what he has decreed will come to pass. You see, if God is not in complete control, if he's merely reacting to events unplanned by him, then he's no longer sovereign. He's no longer all-powerful. And that means he's no longer God. You know, it's easy to say, Amen, but it's much harder to put this into practice in our lives. Keep your finger in John chapter 3. Turn with me to James chapter 1, 17 through 18. James chapter 1, 17 through 18, keeping your finger in John chapter 3. We see this same point made by James in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. We read this. James says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Let's look at the beginning of verse 17. It says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. So that means all those Christmas presents that you got last week weren't from Santa Claus, 
might say, well, actually, I bought them. So, yeah, they weren't from Santa Claus. That's right. But why were you able to buy them? Why were you able to give them to the ones that you love? They were something that was given by God. Your spouse, your job, everything, every good gift comes from above. Now, above is the same word that we're going to see in John 3.31, and we're going to discuss that later. But we see that they come down from the Father of Lights. Why is God called the Father of Lights here? Well, that's because God is being seen and, and spoken of here as the Creator, the one who created all the stars, all the lights in heaven. He is Creator. We also see that there's no variation or shifting shadow in God. What is that talking about? Well, we see that God is unchanging. He is immutable, unchanging. He doesn't change based on anything. Any outside information doesn't change God. Why? Because God knows everything. He's all-knowing. He is absolutely independent. He is the only absolutely independent in the entirety of the universe. You see, God doesn't make plans or respond to people based on human will and action. God's plans and decree is outside of, of his creation, and you see, if God learned anything, if God had to look down through time to see what man would do, that would mean that God had to learn something. That would make him dependent, like his creatures. That would make him like us. God would not be transcendent then. What does it mean to be transcendent? It means to be that God is higher. He is of a different quality than his creation. And that's why here we see that there is no variation or shifting shadow in God. We all have variation. We all change because we are creatures. The easiest way to look at that is to see a little baby and then watch them grow. There's a change because we are creatures, yet God does not change. You say, well, how about Jesus? That's right. He was the son of God, unchangeable. God in his, in his, uh, in his deity, he does not change, but he was born and entered into the world at Christmas in his humanity and thus took on flesh, but his deity did not change. You see, true salvation, anything that we receive from God comes from him because he does not change. He gives us every good, perfect gift. And this is true whether your job, your Christmas presents, or your salvation. Look, at, look with me at verse 18. We see in the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So it's due to the exercise of God's will, not our will, that he brought us forth. Literally bore us, made us alive, born again, believers, through the word of truth. In the early Christians, we see at the end of verse 18, were the first fruits of his creatures, meaning that the first believers under the new, new covenant were the first fruits of, of, this, uh, of this salvation under the new covenant. And what we see in James chapter 1 is the same truth that we saw in John 3.27. Go back with me to John 3.27. You'll notice the language is incredibly similar. John says a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You see, salvation is a gift as we have described, as Pastor Chris has described over the last couple of weeks as we've been in John chapter 3. Salvation is something that God gives to us. It's not earned. It's not worked for. It's not deserved. It's not something that the natural man can choose. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. How about John 3, 5, and 6? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh 
is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, one must be born again, literally born from above. It is God and God alone who can make a spiritually dead sinner come alive, who grants such a man a new heart, grants him faith in repentance. Over the last month, both Pastor Chris and I have used a term that might be familiar to some called monergism when discussing salvation. What is monergism? Well, monergism is the action of salvation that is done by one party. You know, mono meaning one. When you have a monopoly, what does that mean? It means one organization or one person is in sole control of a certain good or service. Well, the doctrine called monergism is simply that it is God alone who is at work in man's salvation. Verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. This is monergistic salvation. And you see this concept, while it seems like a big term, this is at the heart of biblical Christianity. It was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, separating biblical doctrine from theological error. Martin Luther, in his theological debate with the Roman Catholic humanist Erasmus, describes man's will as under the bondage of sin, unable to do anything in his salvation. It must be God and God alone who saves. And we often think of the Reformation as a battle against indulgences or papal authority or purgatory or any other host of different issues. But I'd like you to listen to the words of Luther when he was debating Erasmus, the Catholic scholar who attacked monergistic salvation. And Luther said this in response to this attack by Erasmus. Luther says, quote, I praise and commend you, Erasmus, highly for this also, that unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute, and have not wearied me with irrelevancies about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles, for trifles they are rather than basic issues, with which almost everyone hitherto has gone hunting for me without success. You and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges and have aimed at the vital spot, unquote. You see, monergistic salvation is the very essence of the gospel, and it's the very essence of the Reformation. It's the issue upon which the all-biblical doctrine hinges. And the question is this. It's boiled down to one question. Is God sovereign or is man sovereign? You see, Christ is exalted when his sovereignty is extolled. Christ is sovereign over all. And a correct response to God's sovereignty is acknowledging our proper position before God. Note John's response in verse 28 of John chapter 3. He says, I am not the Christ. You yourselves are my witnesses. I am not the Christ. John was sent ahead to prepare the way for Christ. We looked at that in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. And John's disciples were witnesses of this. They should have known and submitted to Jesus because they witnessed these things. They should have had humility like John did to recognize that, no, I'm just here to point the way to Christ. You see, the correct response to God's sovereignty is humility. Recognizing God's sovereignty exalts Jesus Christ. It gives us no reason to boast and keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves, of our ministry, or our own ideas. And now John uses an illustration to further expound this point. Look with me at verse 29. He uses the illustration of the bride and the bridegroom. 
He says, he who, is, who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So the bridegroom is Jesus. He's preparing to come for his bride. Now, who's the bride? The church. Very good. Yes, the church. We see that in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. Well, who's the friend of the bridegroom, the best man? Well, that would be John, John the Baptist. And you might think, oh, well, John is, he's, I'm, I'm the best man. I'm standing up here with, with Jesus at the wedding. That gives me a, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty important. No, it's the, it's the exact opposite. Why? Well, you see, the best man would take care of all the administrative matters at a wedding. The best man is the representative of the groom until the groom arrives. He is waiting for the groom. In ancient Middle Eastern custom, the friend of the groom could not marry the bride if the, the, if the groom doesn't show up. So if the groom's like, actually, I don't want to go to the wedding. I, can't, I don't want to get married. If the, the wedding is canceled, the, the bridegroom's friend cannot marry the bride. If you all remember the story of Samson in Judges 14, Samson is betrothed to a Philistine woman. He goes off, he comes back, and she's already married. But who's she married to? The person who was his friend. Some friend that was, right? But why was, he, why was he so enraged? Not just the fact that someone else had married his betrothed, but because this man was the friend. And in ancient Middle Eastern custom, he had no right to marry the, the bride. So the friend of the groom has the least right to marry the bride. So when John is saying, I'm the friend of the groom, this is showing his humility. He has no reason to, to be over the church or, or, or over the people of God. He's showing his humility here. The friend rejoices at the sound of the bridegroom's voice. You see, John is the friend who rejoices that Christ, the bridegroom, is coming to claim his bride. And John makes this parallel evident at the end of verse 29. And just as a friend rejoices, John's joy has been made full. It's been completed as much as possible. John is not only happy that Jesus' ministry is growing, he's also joyful. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you experienced true joy over the growth of God's people? Do you experience more joy at a sinner being snatched from hell than your team scoring a touchdown in a football game? Do you experience more joy at hearing the bridegroom's voice in scripture than from hearing your family's voice? You know, Pastor Chris just showed us that Bible reading plan for the year. What a wonderful way to experience the joy of hearing the voice of your Savior through the words of Scripture. Exalting Christ in his sovereignty extends, though, far beyond this. See, John doesn't just stop at joy. Look with me at verse 30, very famous verse. What does John say? He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. You know, Many Christians will proclaim that Jesus must increase. I think if you're a Christian, we all say that, don't we? Jesus must increase. We all, we all say that. But then John ups the stakes here, doesn't he? He doesn't just say that Christ must increase, but that he must decrease. You see, for Christ to be exalted in his ministry, John's ministry must decrease. Now, often this is used as a great example of humility. And this is true to some extent. However, Humility means to lower oneself, to abase, to make lower than, than your, your correct position. 
But like John, we are already, we all of us are all creatures. We are already lower than Christ. So, so John is just stating a fact here. And yes, it is an extent of, you know, of humility to say, yes, I'm giving up my ministry so that he might increase. But he's just saying, this is my proper position. I don't, I'm not owed a ministry. This isn't my ministry. This is God's ministry. You see, our purpose is not to build up our ministry, our standing, or our position, but it is to exalt Jesus Christ. It's not humility to say that we must decrease. It's simply stating the reality of our proper status before God. This is a demonstration of John the Baptist's godly character and a recognition of God's sovereignty. John the Baptist was not upset about Jesus finding more followers. He recognized that his ministry was due only to the grace and goodness of God. He wasn't basing his life's worth or or his position or anything else. He wasn't using that as the source of his joy. No, he was only joyful in his standing before the Lord. He's not holding on tightly to the ministry that God has given him, but he's recognizing its source is from heaven. He's pointing us to the superior ministry of Christ. Now, it's easy to say this, but it's much harder to live it out. And John was about to live it out. And he already had. You remember, John the Baptist had never performed any signs and miracles. He certainly wasn't wearing fancy clothes. I mean, he was clothed in camel skins and a leather belt. He certainly wasn't eating very well. I mean, locusts and honey, whatever he could find in the wilderness. As verse 24 states, John would shortly be imprisoned by Herod. John ended his life imprisoned in a dark dungeon, cut off from the sky, fresh air, and friends. This is a man who had spent his entire life in the wilderness, and now he's alone, can't see the sky, can't hear the birds, in a dark dungeon, surrounded by rock. And John's last moments on earth involved the executioner's blade. He was beheaded by a drunken and debauched king. And then his bloody head was served on a silver platter to Herod's morally depraved wife at a drunken party. But John humbly submitted himself to the sovereign plan of God. And I can guarantee you, the moment that John's head left his body, an object of scorn to Herod, John heard the voice of a far greater sovereign saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. One of my professors at seminary says that we must be prepared to pray, preach, or pass away at a moment's notice. See, we are to proclaim Christ, die, and then be forgotten. John trusted God's sovereignty and desired to exalt Christ. And again, if you are in in any sort of Christian ministry today, whether that's vocational, a Bible study leader, nursery worker, you help decorate the church, I'm speaking to you right now. What are you using to calculate your value and worth in life today? Are you basing your worth on your ministry? If you had to give up your ministry, would you do so or would you resist? Are you willing to decrease for the sake of Christ and the gospel? I'm speaking for myself right now, too, because I, I love our youth, but I can't let that become the source of my identity. I have to say, no, you must increase, Lord, and I must decrease. You see, Christ is exalted, firstly, because he's superior, second, because he is sovereign, and thirdly, because he is above. 
Look with me at verses 31 and 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. These verses show us that Jesus is from heaven. He's from above. He is above all. It's mentioned two times that he is above all. And this is for emphasis. He is above all because he is from above. As Pastor Chris mentioned about two weeks ago, the word above, anothen, is the same Greek word translated as again in John 3, verses 3 and 7. Look with me back at John 3, verses 3 and 7. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. It's the same Greek word. So instead of again, you can just replace that with above. You see, we have to be born uh, from above, because we are not of above. We are not from above, yet Jesus is. And this relates back to our previous verse in verse, uh, verse 27. We can receive nothing unless it has been given to us from heaven, from above. James 1.17 that we read, every good thing and every, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. You see, Christ is exalted because he is from above. He gives from above. We as creatures are not from above. We are earthly. We are from the earth. We see that here in verse 31. He who is of the earth is from the earth. This is John still speaking. He recognizes his position. He's of the earth, meaning that he is fleshly. He is sinful. He is a creature. He is not transcendent like the Lord. John can only speak of things from the earth because he is of the earth. He can't speak of things from above unless they are given to him from above. But Jesus can because Jesus is above all. He's from above and he speaks of things that he has seen and heard. He, see, he has seen things and he testifies to those things. But then we see, sadly, that no one receives his testimony. We see that at the end of verse 32. Now, this is hyperbolic. It's for, for emphasis. The world has rejected the testimony of Jesus, even though he is from above. Look with me back at John 3, verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. We see a difference between the creature and the creator. If we remember from almost three months ago now, John 1, 10 through 11, we're told that Jesus was in the world, that the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and those who were of his own did not receive him. They did not receive the testimony of Jesus. And if you are not a Christian today, if you're not a believer, then this verse is talking about you. You must recognize your condition before the Lord. Christ is from above. You are not. You are from the earth. You have not received his testimony. There's a difference between you and between Christ. And you must be born again, born from above through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is superior. He's sovereign. He's from above. You say, well, why, can I, why should I trust that? We can trust that because Jesus is also true. This is the fourth assertion about Christ that we find in this passage. He is true. Look with, look with me at verses 33 and 34. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So we see in verse 33 that there are those who receive Christ's testimony, those that believe through the Holy Spirit's work. Setting a seal to something in the ancient world is it's like taking a signet ring and, and showing your complete acceptance and approval of something. If you remember when Jesus is crucified, they put a seal, the Romans put a seal on the tomb saying he, he's dead, he's done, and, and, and no one's going to get in there. But of course, what happens three days later? He rises again. But they're setting a seal saying, no, this is true, we've buried him. If you go all the way back to Genesis 41, verse 42, Pharaoh gives his signet ring to Joseph to show that Joseph has authority to operate as his prime minister. Pharaoh was saying, Joseph, you have my complete approval, my complete uh, acceptance. So that's what setting your seal to something is. So a true Christian in verse 33, pardon me, uh, yes, in verse 33 is one who actively sets his seal, says that, no, this is true. They demonstrate their belief that God is true. And why do they do so? Well, verse 42, uh, 34 pardon me, says that they do so because Jesus was sent by God and speaks the words, the very words of God. You see, God is true. Let God be true and every man a liar, Romans 3, 4. Jesus is sent from above from the Father. He's the Son of God and thus true. And the reason to believe is that Jesus is speaking God's words, and he's from above. He is speaking of things he has seen and heard, things that he knows personally. Now, the word for here grounds the statement. For the Father gave Jesus the Spirit without measure. Verse 34. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament had God's Spirit rest upon them during their ministry. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in his mother's womb. Yet the prophets were sinful men, and the Holy Spirit still had to check their sinfulness. But Jesus is not a sinner. No, he is the Holy Spirit without measure. In John 1.32, Pastor Chris talked about the Holy Spirit descending and what at his baptism? Remaining, staying upon Jesus. Colossians 2.9, in him... Speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is fully God. That is the reason that you can trust him. That is the reason that he is true. Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, this very famous verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So my question for you today is this. Have you set your seal that God is true? Do you believe Trust fully in what Christ has done. You are of the earth. You have no capability to be born again or born from above. You can't even receive the testimony of Jesus according to your sinful flesh. Yet Jesus came from, from heaven to earth to be born in a stable and raised up on a cross. He died for the sins of his people and proclaimed the gospel, the good news given by God. This is a true statement given by God in his word. It's not me saying this. It's not Pastor Chris saying this. It's not anyone else saying this. It is the very word of God that is saying this. Won't you submit your life to Jesus today? Either I or Pastor Chris or any of the elders would love to talk to you after the service if you have questions about this. And because Jesus is true, I'd like you to take heed of the final assertion about Christ. Look with me at verses 35 and 36. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. You see, not only is Jesus true, he is judge. Jesus, God the Son, is loved by the Father. The Father has given all things into his, into his hands. And the term has given is a, it's a, in the perfect tense, meaning it's a past action with ongoing results through the present. The Son has rule over all. All things are in his power and under his authority. He judges over all. David Writing in Psalm chapter 2. Actually, let's turn there. De, uh, turn with me. Keep your finger in John. But let's go back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. King David writing this song. And he's writing the father, about the Father's words to the Son. So David is, is writing the words that God has given him. And this is a conversation between the Father and the Son. Psalm chapter 2. Verse 7. So says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He, the Father, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them from, with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You see, one day every nation, every person, every creature will bow to the authority of Christ. Everyone is under the authority of Christ even as we speak. Yet not all have submitted to him. But one day Jesus will return. At Christmas last week, we celebrated the first coming of Christ, and he came to bring peace with men with whom he is pleased. But his second coming, he is coming to judge the nations. He's coming to judge all things, not some things, not many things, not most things, all things he is coming to judge. Look down at verse 12 of Psalm chapter 2. It says, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, what do you need to be saved from? You need to be saved from your sin, that is true. But you need to be saved from the wrath of God, the punishment for your sin. The consequences of your sin is God's wrath poured upon you. Now for the believing ones, we have great comfort knowing that that Christ has saved us. He has died for us. Yet if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, God's wrath is upon you. Go back with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, look at verse 36. Beginning of verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's good news. It's the exact same words that we see in John 3.16. Whoever believes is literally all the believing ones. It's the exact same verbiage. The ones believing here have continual belief. They are believing. The one who believes in the Son is one who believes continually. It's not a one-time event. In other words, if you're a Christian, you don't just pray a prayer and then go live your life however you want. No, you're believing him then and you continue to believe in him throughout the rest of your life. Those who truly believe keep believing. The assurance of salvation is that God keeps his children safe in his hands and those that God keeps will persevere to the end of their life. The one who believes keeps believing and has eternal life. But, oh, what a 
small, yet so significant word. But he who does not obey the Son, literally the one not obeying the Son, will not see life. See, just as David says, the one who does not pay homage to the Son will perish. He won't see life. He won't live in God's kingdom. John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, unless one is born again, he won't obey the Son. He won't see life. He won't see God's kingdom. No, the end of John 3, 36 makes clear that the wrath of God abides upon him. If you are not born again, if you do not have belief in the Son, you are not obeying the Son. And the Son has authority to judge you for your sin. Your sin is rebellion. It's an offense against Almighty God. You see, Jesus has been given all things into his hands, and he will rightly break all rebellion with a rod of iron. One day, Jesus will return to judge the nations. That's because God hates the wicked with a perfect hatred. We often hear the phrase, God loves the, the sinner and hates the sin. But Psalm 5.5 5 says that, no, he hates those who do, who do iniquity. You see, because God loves perfectly, he hates perfectly. True, it's a righteous hatred, not something that you and I can do because we are fallen sinners. But God hates those who do his iniquity, and his wrath is upon them justly for their iniquity, for their sin. And if you are not one who is obeying the Son, if you are not a believing one this morning, then please hear me. Not only will one day you face the judgment of God, in the future, you are currently under his wrath, even as we speak. Note the end of verse 36 of John chapter 3. The wrath of God abides upon you. It continually dwells on you, remains on you, pushes down upon you. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might think, well, how is God's wrath abiding upon me? I mean, I'm living a good life. I'm in America. I, I had a nice Christmas. I'm generally happy. Why should I worry about some future wrath when my life seems pretty good right now? And if you're thinking that, let me give you several reasons why you should take this seriously. One, God's wrath abides upon you and it's demonstrated when God gives men over to their sin. We see that in Romans chapter 1. If you continue in your sin, God will hand you over to it. Two, God's wrath is demonstrated when God hardens men's hearts. Think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh rejects God. He rejects the word of God and God hardens his heart. Three, God's wrath is, is delayed in, the, in its effects, but every day that you live in your sin, you store up more wrath that is due to you for your sins. Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So even if you think you're living a good life and escaping the consequences of your sin, no, you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. An illustration, one that we're familiar with in this area. In 1928, the San Francisco Dam, located just a few miles from this location, suffered a catastrophic failure. The dam collapsed. Hundreds of lives were lost as the floodwaters came crashing down the canyon and eventually reached the ocean. Those living downstream were unaware of the danger as the waters were building up and the dam was crumbling until they finally poured forth with such fury and destruction. You see, such is the plight of anyone who lives a life in disregard of God's wrath 
Jonathan Edwards, America's, perhaps America's greatest theologian, the preacher who sparked the Great Awakening through his famous sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In that sermon, he used a similar illustration to that which I just described, uh, and, and I'd like to read you a passage from that sermon. To quote Edwards, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld But the guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are rising and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. He continues, if God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest and sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Unquote. These are sobering words indeed. If you are a Christian, the wrath has been redirected. That's the glory that we live in as Christians. You see, as Christians, we don't face the wrath of God because God placed the just wrath that was upon us and placed it on his son on the cross. He bore the wrath for you. And Christ is exalted in that salvation. He is exalted in the salvation of sinners. See, Christ is superior to all mankind. He is superior to John the Baptist. He's superior to me. He's superior to everyone. He's sovereign in all things, and his sovereignty extends over all creation. Christ is exalted because he is above all things. He is from above, and he is true because he speaks the words of God and was sent by the Father from heaven. But as we just read, Christ is also the righteous judge, and he will exercise dominion over earth with a rod of iron. He will exercise God's wrath upon all those who do not obey him, whose sins are not covered by his sacrificial death on the cross. And I urge you, if you are a believer, to exalt Christ in your life, to humbly recognize your position and glorify Jesus in all that you do and say. As we enter this new year, may your heart's desire be to glorify God, to increase his glory and decrease yourself. And if you are not a Christian this morning, as you enter the new year, God's wrath is upon you. I take no joy in telling you this, but I must tell you this. If only someone had told those people living below the dam that, hey, the, the waters are coming. You need to move lest they pour out and destroy you. And that is what I am doing and telling you this morning. You do not want to want to enter the new year with the impending doom of God's judgment hanging over your head. So I urge you to repent of your sins, turn to Christ, submit to his lordship, believe in his name. Let's pray together. Our kind, precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the the one who is sovereign above all things. 
You have exalted your son, Jesus Christ. He is superior to us. As Christians, we can take comfort in that fact. We can live lives of purpose and meaning that honor and glorify you. And I know this sermon was hard for some to hear if they're not in Christ. But I ask that if there is someone here who's not a believer, who's not a Christian, who does not follow you, that they would realize the extent of your wrath, their need for salvation. May they cry out to you. What a better way. There is no better way to enter the new year than being part of your family. I ask that your Holy Spirit would convict their hearts as the, we begin to finish out the service with the final song. And if they, anyone has questions, Lord, I ask that you would have them come up to me or Pastor Chris or anyone else in this church. We'd love to share the gospel with them. We thank you. We praise you. We glorify you as we enter this new year. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.